We're uh, taking our time to work through this important section in Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There are two prayers in Ephesians. Andy referred to one of them when he prayed. They are at the back end of chapter 1 and chapter 3. And the substance of these prayers is praying that we will understand and know what it means to be Christians and a Christian church. Why does Paul pray these prayers? Because he knows that that understanding is elusive often for Christians. So let's ask that God will bring clarity to us. Our Father, we pray that you would speak clearly to us from your clear words and that we would truly understand this morning what it means to be saved for Jesus' sake. Amen. Roger and I and the other preachers hugely appreciate uh, the correspondence and the comments and questions that arise from our preaching. Please keep them coming. Here is one that I received this past week. How can I make progress in my life as a Christian with respect to spiritual warfare? Because in truth I am not standing firm. My answer to that question was twofold. One, to read and to pray the two prayers in Ephesians. And secondly, to remember you are not alone, but part of a church family. Let me explain. Turn with me to the two prayers in Ephesians. Firstly, chapter 1, verses 15 to twenty. For this reason, 
For this reason, Paul has just explained the extraordinary blessings every Christian has in Christ. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. He's almost saying, because you're a strong church, because you do understand the gospel, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you, Christian, may know What is the hope to which you have been called? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? And the other prayer, chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's writing to Christians about a deep knowledge of Jesus and the Gospel. That you may be rooted and grounded in love, verse 19, that you may have strength to comprehend, understand, with all the saints what is the breadth, Implied in that, that we do not necessarily understand the breadth or the length or the height or the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And here's the prayer that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I encourage them to read and to pray these prayers What is Paul praying for the Christians in Ephesus? Why might we pray these prayers? That we may know all that we are individually and as a church in Christ. It is extraordinary who we are and what it means to be a living Christian church. And Paul prays that we will not sit at the edge of that knowledge, that we will not sit just up to our knees in that knowledge, that we will be fully embracing in our minds and hearts and wills all that it means to be a Christian who truly knows Jesus. When the Bible speaks about knowledge, we have to be careful not simply to go to the bit up here, the head. We need to embrace the head and the heart when the Bible speaks about knowledge. Knowledge is about our inner being, the very core of us. Think of it like this. When you became a Christian, the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the risen Christ indwelt you, lives within you. Your inner being is Christ. More precisely, your inner being is Christ. It's different, isn't it? When you became a Christian, your inner being is Christ. 
even better than that. When you became a Christian, your inner being is Christ. He lives in you. And so you can know, know in mind and heart and will and inner being the immeasurable greatness of his peace towards those who believe the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge the spirit of the living Christ within you so my answer to the person who said how can I find the resources to stand was not to give them strategies or examples of other Christians but to exhort them to pray in line with Paul's prayers for a deepening of their knowledge in mind and heart and will of what it means to know Jesus the second thing I said to them remember you are not alone but part of a church family you are not battling alone God has given you these people around you to encourage and help you. God has given you to them to encourage and help them. Helpfully this morning, we've seen that exhibited in membership promises. But in the realm of real Christian life, when someone writes to me and says, I cannot stand firm. I need to direct them to the Bible and to the prayers in the Bible. But they need to be honest with me and I need to be honest with them and when these conversations in a church happen that's what Ephesians mean by speaking the truth in love it's why it matters we're back again the next week and we're looking to see if there is a free seat beside them and we say to them we've been praying for you are you standing stronger in the Lord? We do not battle alone. I mentioned last week that on holiday we had a trip to Omaha Beach and the American cemetery. Thousands of graves marked by simple white crosses. Now these men faced enormous issues. But they did not fight alone. What would have mattered in the toughest times was camaraderie, fighting for one another. In the realm of spiritual warfare, being part of a living church means that you do not fight alone. When you are in trouble, others will come to your aid and stand with you, fight with you. And when you and when they are in trouble, you, they will stand, you will stand with uh, them. In uh, Washington, some of you may have been to Washington, the memorials to war in Washington. The most moving one, I think, is the, the Korean memorial. It consists of life-size soldiers in a paddy field, all walking in the same direction. The size of this room is the exhibit. And wherever you stand, 
next to one of the soldiers. Another soldier is looking at you and out for you. Wherever you stand or fall or are in life in a real church family and you look, someone will be looking for you. And never buy the lie of the devil that that's not possible in a church. Just ask Blair. She'll tell you it's true. So if you are struggling, as many of us are from time to time and now, to stand in the realm of spiritual warfare which is real, Maybe don't just read the prayers in Ephesians and pray them. Ask somebody you know and trust to read and pray them with you and share with them what you are battling with. Now today, the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Four words. The helmet of salvation. What is it Let me give you a key reference outside of Ephesians. Roger gave us one from Isaiah. Here's another. Let me just read it to you. Time doesn't permit us to look it up. Isaiah 59 and 17. Isaiah is speaking about God. He, God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing enwrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. What is the enemy in Isaiah, the divine warrior God is engaging with? In Isaiah's prophecy, God has promised to deal with the physical enemies of his people, especially Babylon. Babylon will fall. But in this section of Isaiah's prophecy, what precedes this quotation especially in the servant songs. And what follows in the description of the new creation? Isaiah, God's prophet, describes the divine warrior, Christ, the warrior, Christus Victor, one of the great sayings of the Reformation, Christ, the warrior, coming to deal with humanity's greatest enemy. The sin, the unrighteousness that separates us from a holy God. The very best we can offer Isaiah 64 and 6 is nothing more than filthy rags. If the Lord were to deal with his people according to their own deeds, There would be nothing to anticipate but fearful judgment. But Isaiah declares that the divine warrior will come as not as a wrathful judge but as a redeemer to bring salvation. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in Christ the warrior. Christ the warrior who gives his life for our sin, and so to put on the breastplate of righteousness 
and to put on the helmet of salvation is the righteousness and the salvation that are ours in Christ Jesus. Or in other words, the helmet of salvation is knowing. And remember, knowing means here and here in my inner being. Knowing. Properly knowing. Really knowing. Deeply knowing. And telling each other in case they don't know. And reminding each other as we sing. What it means to be saved as a defense against the devil's lies and attack. Now, what does Ephesians have to say about salvation? My job is not to tell you everything the Bible says about salvation. My job is to tell you what Ephesians says about salvation because Paul writes this bit at the end of Ephesians after he's written the other bits. What does Ephesians tell us about salvation? Firstly, it tells us about salvation by grace. Flick back to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Great verses. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul reminds us who we were. Notice past tense. We were dead, past tense. In the trespasses and sins in which you once, past tense, walked, past tense. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us in the past alive together with Christ. Note, and uh, I don't want to overemphasize this, but you cannot overemphasize it enough. We were dead. But God, out of his love, made us alive. We did nothing. He did it all. The second half of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. Grace means, the word grace should trip off the Christian tongue. What does it mean? It means undeserved mercy. That may have sounded a little harsh. It means undeserved mercy. Grace means salvation, entirely apart from who we are or what we do. And Paul underscores this in verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The devil whispers in our hearts, that's not true. You are not saved entirely by grace. You, your own doing, it matters. God will not give you that gift unless you combine his grace with your life. It is not your own doing, God's word said. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation is by grace. It is an undeserved gift from God for every Christian, so that no one can boast. Why does he say that? What is the devil's tactic? One of them in a church like this. To disunite us. If a church is disunited and you are battling with sin and spiritual war and you look out and you expect to see the eyes of another soldier looking at you, you will not see them. 
for the eyes of the other soldiers will be turned in and down in disunity. You do not want to go to war with a platoon where there is no camaraderie and unity. And salvation by grace takes every single one of us, all two or three hundred of us, and says, you and you and you are a sinner saved by the undeserved mercy of God. And however able you are, however gifted you are, whatever life you have led, that does not make you better than anyone here. It is our fundamental unity in Christ. There is no room for boasting, ambition, rivalry, status, position, rank. In and outside the life of a church for the Christian. We come to church with the attitude that we are undone by mercy. And left, as we are now, apart from me, speechless before Jesus. Speaking the truth in love means speaking to one another, singing to one another that we are sinners saved by grace. That's why we keep singing that. That's why the Lord said, remember my death. You might be this, that or the other a somebody and nobody in the eyes of the world but we are all one in Christ Jesus sinners saved by grace it is that common identity that is the basis of our unity and it is through knowing that in mind and heart and will at the very core of our being that leads to the humility and the gentleness and the patience Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 the eagerness, chapter 4, verse 3, that maintains the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That means a church has an eye for one another. That means a church looks out for those who are lost. How is this a defense against the devil's lies and attack? Well, he will do, as I said, all that he can to convince us that we are not one in Christ Jesus. He will sow the seeds of rivalry and ambition that leads to disunity. He will whisper in our ears, you are better than him. Or more likely, she is better than me. That's a lie. Moreover, to truly know in our inner being what it means to be saved by grace is to realize that no part of me contributes to my salvation. Knowing that for some will liberate them from pride and arrogance. For others it will give them reassurance. Sinners saved by grace, undeserved mercy. fosters an equality, a humility and a unity. Yet more than that, it fosters a deep thankfulness 
before Jesus. An ongoing attitude of repentance and contrition over sin. A zealous heart to serve our Lord. Salvation by grace humbles, unites, moves us, gives us zeal, makes us thankful. And the devil whispers, Are you sure? Grace, he says, is a big part of your salvation. But are you sure that God does not take into account how you live? What kind of person you are, what you have done? That makes sense, doesn't it? And it does. Surely he says that is a more credible view of salvation. I'm not saying the devil whispers that a big part of our salvation is not a gift from God. It is, but it's not all him. There's probably two million babies in crash. It's quiet in here, but I suspect it's total chaos in there. It's not all him. That's a lie. How do you know it's a lie? Because it is a straight line contradiction of God's word. I mean, you really need to take a black marker pen in Ephesians where Paul spells it out absolutely clearly and put a big black marker pen through it and say, that is a lie. That's why we are so committed to not letting you listen to me or Roger on a Sunday, but to keep our noses in the Bible. For by grace you have been saved, not by works. But doesn't verse 10 of chapter 2 refer to good works? The devil says, absolutely. But they are not good works that save us. They are good works because we are saved. They are not good works that convert us. They are good works that as a result, as an expression of our conversion, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Keep singing about that. When you meet for your coffees, when you meet for your small groups, just throw out a question. Just try it out. Can you explain to the rest of the group what salvation by grace means? Are you sure? Are you clear? Keep singing to one another. Sing around your houses. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, like you, like us, all of us. The helmet of salvation is knowing what it means to be saved as a defence against the devil's lies. Number two, salvation from uh, sin. This is a major emphasis in Ephesians, salvation from sin. What does it mean? And Paul's prayers are that we really do understand what it means to be saved from sin. We can speak of salvation from sin in this way. First, the Christian is someone who has been saved from the penalty for sin. 
The penalty for sin is eternal judgment or hell. The wrath of God. Chapter 2, verse 3, Paul describes who we were. He says we were, by nature, birth, children of wrath. That's what we have been saved from. Chapter 1, verse 7, just look at that. Here's a memory verse for you. Two of our kids were reciting to me at the steps a memory verse last week from Keswick. I think we should all learn memory verses. Here's one that you can well learn in your heart. Verse 7 of chapter 1. In him, Jesus, we have, notice the corporate, we, together, all of us, individually and together, we have, not we will have, but we have now, redemption. What does that mean? It means the penalty for our sins has been paid through his blood, through his death on the cross. The forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, according to the riches of his grace and these wonderful words at the end, which he lavished upon us. What a beautiful statement that is, which he lavished upon us. We have been saved from the penalty for sin according to the riches of its grace which he lavished upon us. What does it mean practically to be saved from the penalty for sin? It means as you sit here, you are fully forgiven. I wonder if someone has never quite grasped that. You are fully forgiven. Your eternal salvation is guaranteed. It means the verdict you will receive when you stand before Jesus face to face on judgment day, you know now to which the devil whispers in your ear, can you really be so sure? How can you be certain? You can't know for sure our response. We can be sure devil because our salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in the death of Jesus alone now you're not reciting a text you know what that means and my salvation is grounded in the dust of the earth when the cross of Christ was raised and he bled and died what do you say to that the devil And when someone in the church family is fearful from a lack of assurance, when they are close to falling on the battlefield, you come to their aid and you remind them of the truth of the gospel and you might even sing to them. We only sing to people when they're dying. Sing to them when they're living. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, the living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. The Christian is someone who has been saved from the penalty for sin. One more facet to being saved from the penalty for sin. You might have clear convictions as you sit here that you are fully forgiven and that you have been saved 
from the penalty for sin. The devil cannot get you on that, so he tries to make you hold on to your guilt. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our guilt. Jesus died for our shame. He took it all, sin, guilt and shame, and absorbed the eternal, unabated wrath of God. A Christian is someone who has been saved from the penalty for sin. But there is more. Second, a Christian is someone who has been saved from the power of sin. The first half of Ephesians, if you're anything like me, you can feel the rising heat. The first half of Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 is about who we are as Christians and as a church. How does the second half begin? Hold on tight until you get to glory. Grin and bear your sinful nature. doesn't begin like that, does it? It says live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To use an athletic imagery, get on a treadmill and bring out the talent that God has put into you. Shed some pounds and run faster. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And Paul goes on to explain in the second half of the letter what that means practically. It means putting off the old self and putting on the new. It means living differently, distinctively in our, uh, in our marriages, in our families, in our work, in our relationships. How is that possible through the indwelling Spirit of Jesus who lives in you. Would it be possible, hypothetically, to live a Christ-like life or make progress if Christ was living in you? Yes, and he is. The spirit of the resurrected Christ who conquered sin is living in you. Chapter 1, verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You have within you the Spirit of the living Christ. Every Christian does. Now here are some of the devil's lies with respect to being saved from the power of sin. Number one, sin is not serious. He said, after all, you've been forgiven. Let me tempt you. You will enjoy it. It will be worth it. You've been battling this sin for 30 years. It's got the better of you. You are not making progress and you never will. And what God promises in his word is not true, at least for you, because you're weak. There are many more lies like Don't tell anyone about it. Keep it to yourself. Your sin is a personal, a private matter. Or if the gospel is true, you should be not sinning at all. 
And in response to these lies, the Bible is clear that we will not be free of sin in this life until the new creation. Our fallen nature, our human nature remains, but sin is no longer our master. In the core of our being, the spirit of Jesus lives. Here's a helpful illustration. Before you became a Christian, your life was like a ship in enemy hands. On conversion, the bridge of the ship is taken. The Holy Spirit is at the control centre of your life. The decisive battle is won. Jesus has the bridge, but there is a great deal of fighting still to do. There are pockets of resistance all over that ship. And not until Christ returns will every rivet on that ship, your life, be free of sin. But Jesus has the bridge. How do you think of the ongoing battle with sin in your life as a Christian? Are you fighting it as if you were on the winning side or the losing side? Are you fighting it as a victor or as a victim? We fight sin. On the side of Christ, the winning side. We fight in the power of the risen Jesus who lives in us. These are not cheap phrases. I could raise the emotions and raise the temperature and we could have some background music and I could say to you, go and fight sin this week in the power of the Spirit. That's right. But you need a church. You need the Bible. You need each other. You need humility. But you need to remember you fight on the side of Christ. Do you find you're battling alone? Well, look around you. I make people do that at weddings now. I say, look behind you. And they look at me and think, do you mean it? Do you mean it? And I say, well, okay. Just look at the people who are here. Look around you. Do you know what they're battling with? I'd love to breach every confidence I have. I'd love to. I won't. Because that'd be sacked. But you must breach your own confidence with someone. Share. And ask them to share with you. The Christian is someone who has been saved from the penalty for sin and the power of sin and the presence of sin. Finally, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul is talking about the new creation. When we will be free in our bodies and our minds from the presence of sin, Surely that is in the future. It is. So why am I saying we have been saved from the presence of sin? Because that future grace was won for you at the cross and received by you when you believed in Jesus. Grace is like a cut diamond. There are different facets and sides to it. Saving grace, transforming grace, future grace. 
But all of grace comes back to the cross and emanates from the risen Christ. It is a glorious gospel. Tell one another, it is a glorious gospel. Sometimes you will do it with joy on your face. Sometimes you will say it with tears rolling down your cheeks. Never, ever let the devil persuade that person in the church you love and who has confided in you that eternity for them is not guaranteed. Salvation from sin. You know when you need to encourage each other about the future, eternity, not when you're dying. Because God kind of kicks in then in a very powerful way and the devil has no argument. That's got to be supernatural. It's in midlife, early life, when the devil persuades you that eternity is not real. Finally, salvation from suffering. Now, I want to end with a comment, a brief one on this. A brief one because uh, it is not a major theme in Ephesians. But a number of you have asked about this, and I do want to say just a little bit as we close. Uh, Ephesians is much more focused on salvation from sin. But Jesus' death and resurrection also for Christians saves us from suffering in two dimensions, in this world and in the world to come. In this world, Christians are not exempt from suffering. The Bible does not promise anywhere a life in this world free of suffering. Indeed, it promises that there will be more for the Christian, if anything. But it does promise in this life salvation in suffering. Whatever we face and endure. And in a church family, you see this in living real people. Whatever we face and endure, it cannot separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now we might think, and this is reasonable, and the devil will work hard to convince us, that's not true. There are degrees of suffering that lead me and you to the point when we feel separated from God. And the devil is often found in that place with his lies. But here's the truth. For suffering to be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus, the Lord Jesus would have to separate himself from us. It's not about us losing hold of him. It's about him writing us off, abandoning us, forsaking us, and he will never, ever do that. The one who died for us will never forsake us. When I fear my faith will fail, that's often when I'm experiencing real or intense suffering. When I fear my faith will fail and I lose my grip on Jesus. That's not how the song goes. 
when I fear my faith will fail, He will hold me fast. I let go of God often, but He will never let go of me. And I need you to tell me. And I want to tell you that. That's why it matters you go to your small group because you might just need to hear that. In the darkest valleys of suffering there is never despair. Now you know me well enough to know that there is deep, deep anguish and heartache and tears and it takes time and months and years to come through these dark valleys and we journey through them together as a church family. There is never despair because it is Christ. In the darkest valleys of suffering there is never hopelessness because if there is nothing else in that valley, somebody can sit with you and say, Christ Jesus died for your sins. There is never for the Christian no answer to the question, why? For the Christian, there is never silence. There is never no answer. Do not listen to the devil when he whispers in your ear, God is not answering. He does not care. He does not love you. That is a lie. What is the answer to a Christian in the depths of sorrow and brokenness? Crying, why? What is the answer? What is the answer from a Christian to another Christian in tears? Picking up your Bibles? And saying, but God, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The answer, when there is no other answer that you will believe to the question why, is you have been saved. And you can't hear that answer. And you can't embrace that answer. If you were a lone ranger Christian. It's the kind of answer that you hear when someone has their arms around you. You have been saved. With all that encompasses. To the question why there is never silence. How is that possible? Because when Jesus Christ cried out, why have you forsaken me? There was no answer. He plumbed the unfathomable depths of sin, of guilt, of shame, of wrath, of silence. But for you there is always an answer. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Salvation from suffering in this world and salvation from suffering in the world to come. New bodies in a new creation without sin and without suffering. No more tears, no more sickness, no more death, no more bereavement. Salvation from suffering. The devil at his worst will take someone at their lowest and try to persuade them that there is no answer to the question why. So do you see why Paul is writing about this stuff to a church? Because in these battles, in these valleys you will not stand if you fight alone. I need you. I need you. And we need each other. 
the helmet of salvation, knowing what it means to be saved as a defence against the devil's lies and attacks. Salvation by grace. Salvation from sin. Salvation from suffering. And so together and with Christ, with Christ the warrior, our captain, we stand and we will never fall. Let's pray.